in our last episode. The Thomason brothers confessed to Judge Charles Miller and Benton that they had murdered Joe Adams, and that Charlie Berger and Art Newman had ordered the killing. Revealing Berger's role and their burning of evidence, Harry Thomason recounted the details of the crime. Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 25 I'm Done When word reached his cell of Thomason's confession, Berger was reported to have wept. Whatever the truth of the matter, tears would have been appropriate. For the young man's matter-of-fact account of Joe Adams's killing was completing the wreckage that had begun when Harvey Dungey admitted he had perjured himself at the Shelton trial at Quincy. If extra salt was needed for these fresh wounds, Dungey, who was then being held in the Benton jail on charges of stealing an automobile, would happily oblige. For his part, Berger could still deny that he had ordered the kidnapping and killing of Lori and Ethel Price. And he did. But with the recent confessions and the promise of more to come, the public was beginning to think otherwise. A man with so much blood on his hands might have dipped them into many pools. Until Stack and his investigators talked with Jack Cruz, they too had probably thought the Shelton's responsible for the killing of Lori Price. The fact that Price's body was found between Williamson County and East St. Louis, where the Shelton's headquartered, lent some credence to those suspicions. But when Jack Cruz told what he knew, the pendulum of suspicion swung hard the other way. Across the country, one John Rogers, a watchman at an oil refinery in Long Beach, was arrested on May 22nd by the police of that city. It was soon learned that the name of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter had been appropriated by a newsmaker of no less renown, Arthur Samuel Newman, formerly of Illinois. Having failed in his attempt to saw out of the Long Beach jail, the diminutive gambler was finally extradited. Heading back to Illinois on a train, in the custody of Jim Pritchard and the real John Rogers, he not only admitted his role in the Adams killing, but also confessed to his part in the Price murders. The body of Mrs. Price, Newman continued, was buried under debris at the bottom of an abandoned mine shaft located between Marion and Johnston City. Newman was first taken to a cell on the first floor of the Benton Jail, directly below Berger's quarters, but he was soon removed to Nashville, Illinois, where on June 11th he retold his horror story. On Berger's orders, he and Wooten had accompanied Berger to the home of Price near Marion and abducted the state patrolman. They drove him to Berger's home in Harrisburg, and then back to the barbecue stand, or what remained of Shady Rest. There, during an argument, Berger shot Price but failed to kill him, Newman said. In the meantime, Ethel Price was driven to an abandoned mine. After Connie Ritter and Ernest Blue shot her and threw her body into the shaft, they and the others in the car drove to the barbecue stand, arriving there just after Berger had shot Price. Two carloads of gangsters spent almost the rest of the night searching for an ideal place to dump their victim. And finally, they pulled alongside a weedy stretch of highway near Du Bois in Washington County. As Lori Price pleaded for what remained of his life, 
he was carried into a field where some of the fellows finished him. About five hours after this devastating testimony, workers began removing the debris that Newman said the men had used to fill the shaft of the old Carterville district mine. As the opening deepened, lines formed and buckets filled with tin cans and other debris were passed upward from hand to hand, dumped, and then passed back down again. Inconspicuous in his slouch hat and overalls, Orrin Coleman was one of several county officers laboring alongside the outraged citizens. Arlie O. Boswell was another official present, who sometimes dug, sometimes passed buckets, and at intervals traded off to sample ice cream provided by the Marion Ice Cream and Ice Company. As dusk became dark, lights were strung up, necklaces above a nightmare. Judging from those who stood quietly watching the men work in the depths of the pit, this might have been the mouth of hell, discovered at last on a late spring night by a large band of intensely curious men. But it was anger more than curiosity that drove these men to disclose the mine's terrible secret. Whatever her husband's involvement with the Burger Gang, Ethel Prudence Price was a classic example of an innocent bystander who was killed because she was a potential witness. Tempers were further sharpened by the widespread belief that the pretty school teacher was pregnant at the time of her death. When neighbor went gunning for neighbor in the clan war, when Mrs. S. Glenn Young was blinded by her husband's enemies, when gangsters or hangers-on were found murdered on lonely back roads or in the ruins of burned buildings, area residents shook their heads and questioned the sanity of the times. But this latest atrocity defied comprehension. As the grim task of recovering the body continued, Frank Franklin County authorities were completing the transfer of their best-known prisoner to the Sangamon County Jail at Springfield. Only that morning, Berger and his attorneys had appeared in Judge Charles Miller's court for the purpose of requesting a change of venue. Harry Thomason's allegations, the attorneys argued, had so poisoned public opinion against their client that a fair trial in the region was no longer possible. Judge Miller thought otherwise. The judge's ruling notwithstanding, it was clear to Sheriff Pritchard that, charged as the atmosphere was already, Newman's confession that afternoon made it necessary to move Berger and to move him quickly. They feared a lynching if he remained in Benton. Throughout the night and into the next morning, the work at the mine continued, only to be stopped for a time by a rainstorm that began around 3 a.m. While others wielded their coal buckets, Arlie O. Boswell, Deputy Arlie Sinks, and two other men set out from the Peabody 3 mine and waded water up to their chins for almost a mile, trying to find the bottom of the Carterville District mine. Within 200 feet of their destination, water finally stopped them. Boswell recalled the incident. We started on foot and of course, we got in water. We got water up to our shoes, then up to our knees, and where the rock had fallen from up at the top, we couldn't see. It was just old slimy water. We'd stumble, just busting our shins all to pieces. We kept walking, and the water was cold as ice. They kept saying, if we can just get over that hill, you hear that noise? If we can just get over that hill, we got it made. But the water began to go into our noses. That was the longest trip I ever took in all my life. That was the silliest thing I ever did in all my life. On Sunday afternoon, June 12th, the men achieved a depth of nearly 30 feet. Planks were nailed on telephone poles that had been laid across the opening earlier in the day. From this platform, the buckets could more easily be hoisted. At about 3 a.m. on Monday, following another break caused by a storm, a large scoop shovel was put into operation. 
Again, Arleo Boswell recalled, Someone told me that the C&EI Railroad had a drag line on a flat car, and they were quite sure they'd let me have it. We got in touch with them. It was at Mount Vernon, and the drag line was brought down. Using this piece of equipment, big chunks of concrete were hauled to the surface. After a piece of sheet iron was hoisted, the men saw in the pale yellow muck the well-preserved body of Ethel Price. Later, streets near the Osmond Funeral Home in Marion were roped off to prevent curiosity seekers from crowding out friends and relatives who wished to view the body. Members of the American Legion Post of Marion served as pallbearers at the funeral. It was held the afternoon of June 14th at the First Baptist Church in Marion. That same day in Benton, Judge Charles Miller postponed setting the date of Berger's trial until the defendant was returned to Franklin County. I'm done, Berger told reporters when he arrived in Springfield, and the disclosures of the next two days served only to confirm him in this belief. That his trial had been postponed did offer some hope that the collective ire of outraged Egyptians might cool before his return to Franklin County, of course. Two days after arriving in Springfield, he was transferred to the jail at Bloomington. The enmity that existed between Berger and Newman was apparent to fellow gangsters in January, if not earlier. But for reasons of self-preservation, the two chose not to make public their differences. Now in the Belleville jail for his own protection, and having nothing to lose and possibly much to gain by severing his ties, Newman insisted that Berger lied when he denied his participation in the Price killings. Newman also intimated to reporters that revelations would follow that would shock Southern Illinois to its already shaken depths. Con man and killer though he was, Art Newman had little of the reticence usually associated with gangsters, and his promise of future disclosures gladdened the hearts of reporters as it deepened the gloom of his former partner. On the morning of June 21st, shortly after Berger's return to Benton, Judge Miller set the trial date for July 6th. Also present for the important announcement were Newman and Highland. Although Arleo Boswell read the news of the forthcoming trial with more than passing interest, his main concern was staying alive. On July 18th, while driving to his home in Marion, he was again fired upon. But this time his assailant was wide of the mark, unless the mark was the state's attorney's nervous system. Preparing the prosecution's case against Ural Gowan and Rado Milich in the upcoming Jones trial was another pressing matter, and one he pursued with his back to the wall whenever possible. Within the mainstreams, there were undercurrents. Earlier that spring, before Harry Thomason had unburdened himself before the eager ears of Roy Martin and John Rogers at Pontiac, Ray Highland found himself in the Marion Jail with little hope of being released. Although a jury had failed to return a guilty verdict against him and the others in the Marshall Stewart trial, he was being held on another robbery charge. In balmier times, Berger might have provided the bail, but the gang leader was either in jail or temporarily out on bail himself. Finding his situation more hopeless each day, the jaunty young man from East St. Louis let it be known that he wanted to talk to Arlie O. Boswell, the man with whom he had fought at the barbecue stand, the man who had tried and failed to convict him on the robbery charge, and the man who would, in all probability, try again. I let him sweat there for a month, maybe two months, Boswell recalled. Relenting at last, he consented to be locked in with the prisoner, to learn what he had to say. For a consideration of a reduced sentence, or probation, or even to be out under bond, Highland said he could help salt away any number of Burger gangsters. 
The best Boswell could promise him was a letter of recommendation to the warden at Menard, a handy document when parole became a possibility. Thinking the matter over, the prisoner decided small favors were better than none, and began to talk. To my surprise, said Boswell, the first thing he told me was about the Shag Warsham affair. Secondhand though it was, Highland insisted that his information was reliable, coming as it did from the gangsters who were there. Lyle Shag Warsham, who was suspected of being a Shelton informant, was abducted at Ziggler by Fred Thomason and Harvey Dungey and taken to Shady Rest. There, Berger and Dungey wrangled over the young man's fate. Berger favored letting him live, while Dungey insisted he needed killing. Apparently, Dungey presented a convincing case, for Warsham was driven to an isolated area southwest of Marion and there told to run for his life, which he did. Seconds later, that life ended in a clatter of machine gun fire. The earthly remains of Lyle Shag Warsham would have lain in the weeds until the inevitable passerby stumbled upon him, except that while looking for a likely place to turn the cars around, the men noticed the lights of a nearby farmhouse. Those inside the house had surely heard the shooting. Worse, they might have discerned the unmistakable chatter of machine guns, weapons most often associated with the Burger Gang. Therefore, the body was reloaded into an automobile and driven to Marion, where, at a filling station at the edge of town, Berger bought five gallons of gasoline. Driving south, they came at last to an abandoned farmhouse in the Pulley's Mill area near the Williamson-Johnson County line. The ensuing conflagration did not entirely consume Warsham's body, but it did make positive identification almost impossible. Not until Boswell's conversation with Highland did the circumstances of the killing become known outside the gangster's own circle. The story itself would not appear in the newspapers until later that year. While he was at it, Highland provided useful information about the Ward Jones killing as told to him by other gang members. At first, Boswell rejected his story, but as other informants came forth, he began to believe that Highland's account was essentially true. The test would come later in the year when Judge Hartwell gaveled the court to order for the Jones trial. No one would be more attentive to that trial's outcome than Berger himself, the verdict serving as a possible bellwether of his own treatment at the hands of a jury. As he was well aware, there were outstanding differences in the attitudes of the two counties concerning capital punishment. Williamson had seen several executions, the last being in 1921, when Satimi DeSantis was hanged. Franklin County, on the other hand, had yet to erect a scaffold. The graying man in his second-story cell could only hope that those who believed it would never do so were right. Next time. I had a rifle in my hand and I fired at him four times. 